Good evening, everyone. I'm Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Murray Sabrin. Murray, how's it going? Great to be with you, Joseph, on this balmy night here in uh, southwest Florida. Yeah, it, it's been cooler up here in, in central Florida, but uh, the balminess down there is very typical for this time of year. Murray lives in a very nice area. I, I have been there. Uh, and uh, it's uh, th there's a lot to see on the western coast of Florida, even though traditionally people gravitate towards the east. But now the whole state is getting built up. And, uh, you know, real estate is rapidly becoming untouchable. If it's not that already, uh, everybody is flocking to Florida, even though uh, the economy is not doing the best, even though there are massive disincentives for uh, buying uh, real estate, given the interest rates, people are still coming here in droves. And uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. No, I think between uh, the weather up north, uh, the uh the economic conditions in some parts of the country, the crime issue in uh, many metropolitan regions, and uh, the whole wokeness uh, culture that uh, has blossomed in, uh, in in colleges, universities, the public schools. I think people are looking for a place to raise their kids where they don't have to be bothered with uh, uh, this uh, this cultural transformation that is really astonishing. Uh, in just a, a few short years, um, the, the culture has, has shifted so dramatically that uh, America in many ways is unrecognizable from the time I was growing up back in the 50s and 60s and um, uh, got married in the late 60s. And it's just, it's just unbelievable how, how it's changed. And so uh, if you're a parent or parents with uh, children, um, the public schools seem to be um, a place that you may not want to have your kids from K through 12 because of... Um, what they're getting instead of education, they're getting as uh, some people have called it indoctrination and propaganda. So uh, it's, it's gonna be an interesting uh, few years, if not a few decades as how America unfolds given uh, the cultural shift that we've, we've been seeing. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and obviously, Florida has been positioned by its state government as being an anti-woke bastion, although this stuff permeates throughout the culture due to social media, everyone mm -hmm. having a smartphone. Uh, so, and kids, you know, being on social media and having smartphones. So it's interesting to see what will happen. But as you said, there are some very intriguing days ahead. And for those who don't know, Murray Sabrin is a professor emeritus of finance at Ramapo College. That's in New Jersey. Uh, and he writes a Substack column that you should check out. Murray, please tell people where to find your stuff. It's murraysabrin.substack.com. And um, I'll be probably writing something this uh, weekend about uh, what's going on, uh, especially in the Mideast, uh, which of course is uh, a powder keg to say the least. And uh, uh, to give you some idea what I'll be writing about, Joseph, um, when I uh, ran for governor in 1997 as a Libertarian Party candidate, I was contacted after the election, which of course I didn't win. I, I, we had no expectation of winning, but I was contacted by a rabbi in central Jersey. And he said, he'd like to have me speak to, my con uh, to his congregation. And I said, what can I talk about to his congregation? And my topic was why Jews should be libertarians. So uh, I think I'll be taking off on that theme given what's going on in the Mideast today and that how libertarianism is something that uh, Jews and people of faith of, of and any uh, or non-faith should embrace because uh, it's the most, I think, humanitarian, humane, social, economic, political philosophy that we have. 
Very, that's fascinating. That would make for an interesting show in and of itself, why Jews should be libertarians. I'd be very uh, interested to hear your argument, although you did give a, a very uh, brief snapshot of it just there. Uh, but uh, fascinating, really fascinating. And we that's definitely something to get into on another episode. Uh, tonight, we'll be discussing a few things. Uh, first and foremost, uh, what has happened with uh, Malay, Javier Malay, in Argentina. He has just been elected president, and he was a candidate that not many people took seriously for quite some time. A libertarian firebrand who had some radical has some radical ideas for uh, reviving Argentina's long ailing economy, and he wound up being uh, the. Uh, well, they have a unique system wherein the top two vote getters go on to a runoff. Uh, so he wound up getting into the runoff, and he won a very convincing victory over the establishmentarian candidate of the center left, who basically promised more of the same uh, under you know with different language. If that makes any sense. Uh, so Malay's victory absolutely sent shockwaves. He has been called the Trump of Argentina, although he has some rather different ideas than Donald Trump does. Uh, Malay certainly has much more in the way of an ideology than Donald Trump, and you know that could be good or bad. Uh, but uh, Malay definitely has a certain uh, school of thought that he wants to impose on Argentina, and he believes it will make Argentina great again. Now, a, a little bit of background before we get into Malay and the Argentine economy. Argentina, at the turn of the century, talking about the beginning of the 20th century, was on par with the U.S. It was actually looking like it was going to be wealthier than the U.S. Unfortunately, with the Great Depression, uh, Argentina tanked, and then it pursued a series of economic policies which are very difficult to categorize in terms of right and left, but they boil down to state control, and it's called Peronism. It was obviously under Juan Peron. Uh, and uh, the ideas outlive Peron, and now there are different Peronists. Some say they're the center, some most say they're on the left, a few say they're on the right. And Argentina has been run in this Peronist fashion since the Depression. Uh, and it has had some ups, but it's had mainly downs, catastrophic downs. And the ups have been very much unsustainable. That goes without saying. Uh, so they were sort of a mirage, even in the best of days. Uh, so now Malay wants to change the paradigm completely and inject a libertarian uh, approach into Argentina's economy and its political system. He's definitely interested in slashing the bureaucracy. And he calls himself an anarcho-capitalist. Uh, Murray, before we talk about Malay specifically, what is an anarcho-capitalist? Very simply, it means that we don't need a state in order to have a prosperous economy, to take care of people who are in need. We have a, a private social sector in the United States, it's called a nonprofit sector, philanthropy, that takes care of that. That law um, can be done through uh, uh, private contracts and uh, uh, arbitration. In fact, there's a wonderful book uh, written by an economist many uh, uh, years ago called uh, Enterprise Without Law by Bruce Benson, where he showed that historically, uh, cultures have had law without the state, without the nation state. So this is fascinating anthropological um, insight that you don't need a, 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 an intrusive government to do what most people would like to see in their society, which is peace, prosperity, um, community values, if you will, based upon individualism. Uh, and uh, you could have voluntary collectivism. That's the beauty of a free market and a free society and an agro uh, 
capitalist society is that you can have a collective society where people get together and uh, uh, voluntarily create a commune, a kibbutz, which is a good example of that, as long as there's no overriding, overarching uh, entity called the government that uses coercion. So in an agro-capitalist society, everything is done voluntarily, and it's done through contract and private property rights. And so if you look at the history of the United States, uh, we had basically that in the early part of the Republic, except there were some deviations, of course, with Hamilton and his uh, nationalistic program. But otherwise, um, an agro-capitalism is, I think, natural to the human race, is that people get together in a community and decide what the rules will be in order to make sure that we have uh, uh, peace and harmony and uh, everyone is respected, uh, no one commits aggression against their fellow citizen. And um, the, the foremost exponent of an agro-capitalism in the United States was the late Murray Rothbard, who's written several books on this subject, uh, for a New Liberty, his 1973 book, where he goes over how uh, the status, the statism that we have in the United States today. Uh, oh, but back then, the book was published in 73. And there are others, Walter Block um, at the, in New Orleans has been writing about that as well. Uh, Lou Rockwell at the Mises Institute and LouRockwell.com. So there have been people in the United States that um, that Malay has uh, relied upon to, uh, to uh, articulate this position, Hans Hom. Herman Hoppe has done the same thing in his books as well. So there is a vast body of literature on anarcho-capitalism that challenges the notion that you must have a state to uh, to have social order, to have um, uh, prosperity, and that we don't need these big government institutions like the Federal Reserve, the income tax, all these regulatory agencies uh, to uh, to uh, have order and uh, stability in society. So uh, I've read the literature. It makes quite uh, quite sense about how to organize ourselves because when you think about it, uh, criminals are a very small portion of our society, thank goodness. And the, uh, those are the people that don't believe in the non-aggression principle, which is the heart of libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism. And so they have to be dealt with in, in a humane way, but they... Um, but they can be dealt with in a way that uh, uh, we all can agree upon. People uh, who commit crimes either uh, have to do restitution if it's if it's a crime of property they have to restore, and then punishment. And so there are different ways of uh, of implementing that. And of course, when you have uh, violent criminals, you either have prisons, or my favorite way is that. Uh, they're exiled from society. That's how Australia was formed, that uh, criminals from England and other parts of the uh, empire, the British empire, uh, went, they were taken to Australia, and that's how Australia was founded. So there are many ways of dealing with people who are uh, career criminals or commit heinous crimes in, in, uh, in society. It's a fascinating subject matter that, as with other things you mentioned, make for a good episode in and of itself. Now, what do you think of Javier Malay as an anarcho-capitalist? You wrote an article about this on Substack. Well, th this is fascinating because um, uh, he's an economist by training. Uh, he's a member of Congress. He's seen the destruction of Peronism in, in uh, Argentina. And I would just uh, make an amendment to how we view the world politically. Usually it's a left-right dichotomy, mm -hmm. and sometimes people on the right and the left agree on big government. Uh, they agree on a whole host of interventions in the economy. The way I like to describe it is that the, uh, that the political dichotomy 
is binary. It's between liberty and statism. Statism is something that the Democrats believe in wholeheartedly, and most Republicans believe it wholeheartedly. And the, how do we know that? Because they all believe in the, uh, or most of them believe in the military industrial complex. They believe in uh, this uh, government social safety net, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Those would those programs would not be uh, there, there. Would be no government programs like that in an anarcho capital society. So how do how do we get to that is is a separate issue. But the point is, I don't like to use the left right dichotomy. Uh, I like to use you either in favor of liberty, individual liberty, property rights, uh, non-intervention uh, overseas, or you believe in statism, where the where you have a top-down approach to the economy. You have um, uh, quote alliances overseas that gets us involved in actual wars like Korea, Vietnam, um, uh, Gulf Wars, or the proxy wars that we now have in Ukraine and uh, the supplying military aid to Israel. So, um, so that's the way I look at the world is from the lens of what should the government be doing? And if it follows the constitution, Joseph, article one, section eight does not allow the federal government to spend money on things that they're spending money on right now. And you look at the federal budget and you compare it to Article 1, Section 8, and there is a 180-degree dichotomy between what the government spends and what is what uh, the Constitution authorizes the government to spend. So that's the issue that we should be addressing instead of how much the budget should go up, 6% a year or 4% a year. To me, that's that's a, a, a phony debate. That That is not going to get us back to where we should be, which is a limited government republic, which uh, Republicans play lip service to it, but they continue to spend. And I think Trump was a good example of that during his four years in office, spending went through the roof. Yeah, especially in the last uh, year with COVID, oh, that was something yep. happening across the world and that was across the political spectrum, although you have your own views on the political spectrum, as you mentioned. Uh, it is interesting because obviously the, the Keynesian view is that there has to be a balance between the uh, interests of the private sector, the public sector, and the public sector. And this is a very broad uh, simplification. Some say oversimplification. There are different Keynesian perspectives, but the general idea is that the government infuses the economy with money to uh, basically make up for natural ebbs and flows. Uh, so uh, I should say natural pitfalls within the ebb and flow of the economy. Uh, so it, it's really uh, interesting uh, to, to see uh, the your perspective, which is an Austrian school one, uh, go up against the Keynesian point of view. I will say that some people point to certain historical events to say that the Austrian school is best. Others point to other events to say Keynesianism is best. Uh, I, I'm not going to advocate for either. I, I think it's obvious that I would fall somewhere in the middle. But uh, I will say that FDR did take an ultra-Keynesian approach to the American economy during the Great Depression. And as a result, by the late 1930s, his right-hand man, Morgenthau, uh, he admitted to Congress that they... Uh, that their policies had been a failure, that they had not delivered for the public. And Morgenthau also came up with a famous quote, we're spending more than we ever have, but it's not working. And obviously that was a reference to the Great Depression. So looking at, uh, looking at Keynesianism, it's definitely something that has uh, not a very uh, 
it, I, it does not have the best track record then again no economic perspective does because of economic change there's never any silver bullet for a long-term uh, great economy that doesn't have the pinnacles and pitfalls uh you know the economy does have its <laughs> ebb and flow and that's that so it, it's it's really uh unique to look at how these different economic schools of thought operate uh anyway uh murray i i didn't mean to go too off course there but i just wanted to give some context uh, now argentina it, some would say that's been run in a keynesian fashion because peronism obviously dovetails to a certain degree very broadly with, with keynesianism but peronism takes things to a new level uh it, it, it's it's really something that's hard to describe because it's many different things that boils down to state control of the economy yeah, yeah. Uh, with the private sector being subordinate to state control. Uh, and it's been a, a failure, uh, definitely a failure. It's had its times of, you know, uh, of economic productivity, but as I said, they're a mirage, they never last. And Malay is coming about as a total antidote to uh, Argentina's problem. And I will read a bit from your Substack article to get into uh, that problem. Uh, you wrote Malay one because the status policies of Peron's political descendants have decimated the once flourishing Argentine economy. With inflation at 140% and the poverty rate at 40%, the objective conditions were in place for the voters to say no mas. The closest America came to a Malay moment was the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, who campaigned on the slogan, get government off the backs of the people. He vowed to shut down the departments of education and energy. Alas, it did not happen. Murray Rothbard, Mr. Libertarian, dissected the Gippers presidency and concluded it was a failure. Government spending, the real measure of the burden on the public, rose substantially under Reagan, as did the national debt. In short, Reagan's rhetorical limited government agenda was deep-sixed. Will Malay's presidency suffer the same fate? Strong libertarian rhetoric, but the status quo continues. This is the danger of electing a libertarian head of state. The entrenched interests plus the permanent bureaucracy, the deep state, will not give up their power without a fight. However, we know that statism is economic and social poison and that free markets and private property are the natural order to preserve liberty and create prosperity. Thus, anarcho-capitalism is the only moral, legitimate, and peaceful way for human beings to organize themselves. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, I think that's about it. So you give your perspective here on anarcho-capitalism and uh, Malay says he is a supporter of that. You also talk about the issues uh, plaguing Argentina, although, you know, there's a hell of a lot more to get into. Uh, and you refer to uh, a very uh, rough parallel between Malay and Ronald Reagan. Uh, and then you mentioned that Reagan really did not do what he set out to do in terms of reducing the size and scope of government. Uh, all very important stuff to note, uh, given the conversation subject matter. Now, Murray, how do you expect Malay to do, generally speaking? Well, it's really hard to tell because uh, he doesn't have a majority of uh, the Congress uh, uh, that uh, came in with him or was there uh, uh, expecting him to uh, come in on a white horse and, uh, and do what he said he was going to do. So he has to convince the members of uh, his uh, legislature that what he's proposing for Argentina will get the economy back on track like it was prior to Perón. And I think that's where being a good messenger, 
uh, pointing out that these uh, cabinet departments that uh, has been that have been created, and uh, he, there's a YouTube video or a, a Twitter a video showing him uh, looking at all the agencies that he would uh, abolish, and it's quite a list of agencies that have nothing to do with increasing uh, the uh, output of goods and services that the people want. These are all agencies like we have in the United States: the Department of Commerce, Energy, Education. Um, in other words, the private sector is the engine of growth, not government. All government does is take money from the people or borrow money from the people or other uh, uh, organizations and institutions or the central bank prints money to make up for the budget shortfall. But the government doesn't create any wealth. It's the private sector that creates the wealth. And in order to do that, you need capital formation. So you need investors, not only from Argentina, but from uh, neighboring countries and from around the world who, who, who will look at Argentina as a great place to do business. And that's how an economy flourishes, just as our economy flourished in the 19th century when capital came in from the rest of the world because they saw the great opportunities in the United States. So Malay has to make the case that what's happened has not worked. That's why we have 140% inflation and a 40% poverty rate. So we need to free up the economy. We need to get, a, uh, get rid of uh, government spending that does nothing to enhance the, the uh, well-being of the American people. In other words, the general welfare, if you want to use that term, like we have in our constitution, and, and make the case that we need foreign capital, we need to have a sound money. That's the biggest challenge he has, is how do you how do you, uh, create a sound money given that the Argentine peso has collapsed in value? When we went Buenos Aires several years ago, I think it was 10 pesos, 11 pesos, wow. something like that, to the dollar. Now, it's, I don't know, several hundred to the dollar. So it just shows you how far... The, the peso has dropped in value against the U.S. dollar. And, of course, there was a thriving black market, as there is right now in, in Argentina. So to live in a society like that means that you're spending more time trying to get a good uh, price for your currency rather than producing goods and services that people want. And so what he's got to do is call in all the players and really give them an economic lecture saying, diagnose the problem, where we are today how we got here, and what we need to do to go forward. He needs to bring in all the major uh, CEOs of corporations, uh, maybe um, uh, people who represent small businesses, and say, we're going to free up the economy. Entrepreneurship plus capital gives us prosperity. And get rid of the dead weight in the government so we reduce the budget so the central bank doesn't have to print pesos in order to cover the budget deficit. And then he's got to come up with a plan to... Um, to uh, have a stable monetary system. And this is the biggest challenge he's gonna face. Now he wants to replace the peso with the US dollar like Ecuador has done when they had their hyperinflation. And it seems to be working quite well in Ecuador. The question is, this is a technical matter that I haven't uh, pursued in terms of how do you go about doing that to, to make sure that uh, there's no tremendous dislocation because the last thing you wanna do is to make poor people poorer, because that will be a recipe for social unrest. And he understands that. He was quoted as saying, we're not going to cut the benefits of uh, poor people because you don't want to have people marching in the streets in Buenos Aires and uh, causing his uh, presidency to be sh uh, short-circuited. So he's got to come up with plans, with input from members of Congress, from the business sector, 
and say, let's roll up our sleeves and do what's good for the people. And let's forget about politics. And let's talk about the truth, namely two plus two still equals four. The, the Peronists thought that two plus two equals six. And that's why they spent money like crazy. And so many people are now dependent upon a government check. And we're getting to that point in the United States as well, where people are so dependent upon Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other subsidies that the federal government has, including business. And the nonprofit sector also gets a, a chunk of their uh, revenue from um, the government. So we have a lot of work to do here, but it's going to be fascinating to see how he is able to tackle the issues in Argentina, because they've been building that for a hundred years, uh, just about a hundred years. So this doesn't happen overnight, but let me give you a historical example, which may uh, shed light on how we can do this pretty quickly. After World War II, when Germany was divided into various sectors between the English, the French, uh, the, the Soviets, and the United States, the United States put draconian controls in, into uh, Germany in order to, quote, punish them, I, I would assume, and wage price controls, capital controls. It was a nightmare. And what happened is Ludwig Erhardt, um, one weekend, uh, virtually eliminated all the controls. And guess what happened? The economy started booming. And this was the German miracle after World War II. Everyone should read up on it because it's, it's probably one of the most important historical episodes of how totalitarian controls by the United States, which fought World War II for freedom and liberty imposed on Germany. And Ludwig Erhard comes in and got rid of virtually all of them. And the, the German miracle began. I mean, Germany after World War II was completely destroyed or virtually destroyed. I mean, uh, the cities were destroyed, the factories were destroyed. And in, uh, in a short few years, uh, the German economy roared back because entrepreneurship was unleashed. And that's what you need to do is entrepreneurs, the people who know how to put things together to get goods and services to the people. And I've been harping on this for uh, half a century, practically. And uh, this is what I intend to do now that I'm retired is in my Substack column and uh, uh, speeches that I give is to really point out that government officials do not know how to plan an economy. And that's been known for a hundred years now uh, since the publication of Ludwig von Mises' 900-page book, Socialism, where he demolishes the case for central planning. And Peronism is a form of central planning. It's statism. And if you want to narrow the term, it's economic fascism, where the government brings in the labor unions and other uh, interest groups and tries to form um, a policy based upon doling out uh, benefits to uh, their favorite political um, allies. And this doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it hasn't worked in the United States. It causes all sorts of distortions in the economy. And um, it just makes people poorer than they otherwise would be. Uh, and the key to prosperity, uh, you know, people ask, how do you, how do you, uh, uh, why is there poverty? Well, if we all were, were on a desert island by ourselves, Joseph, we would be incredibly poor. But the question is, what causes prosperity? That's the question we should be asking. And what causes prosperity is capital formation, free markets, sound money, virtually no regulations, having a, a legal system that can adjudicate disputes, having, uh, uh, having allocated property rights properly, 
And uh, th that's the formula. That's the recipe for any society that wants to have uh, prosperity and, and to lower the rate of poverty. And uh, that was happening in the United States after World War II. The poverty rate, I think, was about 35, 40% after World War II. And it steadily was going down through the 50s and mid-60s. And then when the Great Society programs kicked in, the poverty uh, uh, rate flatlined. It didn't go down any further, even with all the trillions of dollars that uh, Johnson and subsequent administrations have spent on these uh, social economic programs. So Malay is an economist. He's probably well-read in history as well. And he just has to make the case to the people. He should get on TV as much as possible and say, this is what we're going to do, why we're going to do it. And we trust the people to do what they do best, which is to uh, work with each other in, in a peaceful manner, to bring forward the goods and services that uh, consumers want. And we are going to invite uh, businesses from around the world to come in to and let them know that their uh, property will be uh, protected by law in Argentina. There'll be no confiscation. There'll be no onerous taxation. There'll be no onerous regulations. And that uh, with capital will come uh, factories, will become uh, people will be employed. And, um, and I think he can bring in some of the top people from the United States, from Europe, and help uh, uh, recreate the Argentine economy, Argentine economy that was the sixth best economy in the world uh, in, in the 1920s and, and the 1930s. Uh, and so I think that the, what he has he has to uh, uh, get all the players involved. Uh, the, the term used is uh, is uh, all the sh all the stakeholders involved. And if he does that, I think he'll be very successful. Yeah, yeah. The, the question is, will he be able to do it? I certainly hope so, because Argentina has a hell of a lot of promise, uh, and uh, it's just been treated in an absolutely terrible way, economically and politically, that uh, the promise is elusive, even though it's there. So it kind of has the veneer of a first world country, but uh, once you get down to the core of it, it, it becomes very much not even second world, but third world. And America is something... Uh, I would say something similar now, but it, there are parallels between it. Some parts of America actually are very third world like, but that's not the norm. It's nowhere near the, 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 at the level one finds in Argentina. But there are parallels going on between the American economy and the Argentine economy. And that relates to every other facet of society. Uh, Murray, what would you say are the most important of these parallels uh, economically between America and Argentina? Well, I would say the uh, deficits, the debt in the United States. Uh, I just read, uh, uh, I forgot where it was, that when Obama left office or when he came into office in, 20, in 2008, 2009, the national debt was $10 trillion. Now it's $33 trillion. So the debt has gone up uh, three times, more than three times under Obama, Trump, and Biden. And uh, this is supposedly supposedly having a good economy now, according to uh, President Biden and his acolytes uh, in the media and um, and in the business world. And yet um, the deficit is what could drive the United States down the road to where the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has to buy up most of the debt because there are not enough uh, uh, investors around the world and the United States to buy up the debt because of the deficit. And so the, we know the interest expense is skyrocketing because the Federal Reserve kept interest rates so low for so long. 
that the federal government was borrowing money at virtually zero percent. And now I think the average cost of the debt is around four percent. And uh, we're, I think it's 700 or 800 billion dollars a year in interest expense per year. That I just saw recently may reach three trillion dollars or well over two trillion dollars uh, by 2030, which is not that far away. If we have close to two trillion dollars a year in debt for the next seven years, that's another 21 trillion dollars of new debt on top. So that's, that's about 50 trillion dollars of debt. At 5%, it's $2.5 trillion of interest expense. That's if interest rates stay at 5% uh, over this time period. So we are at the, at the proverbial between the rock and a hard place. The only thing that we have going for us is that the United States has the world's reserve currency, which means that there's a demand for dollars around the world because so much trade is done in dollars. But what if countries, the BRIC countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, South Africa and other countries join and say, we uh, we feel that uh, using the dollar is not in our best interest. And so therefore we're gonna use something else. And that's something else, Joseph, could be a new world currency backed by gold because we know the central banks have been buying gold hand over fist. And today, Joseph, gold set an all time high price of nearly $2,100 an ounce. So something is happening around the world where uh, people, investors, uh, institutions, governments are buying up the yellow metal because uh, ultimately that is the uh, premier uh, money uh, used around the world. I mean, like the U.S. dollar, gold can be transact used for transactions all over the world. So I would expect something big to happen in this decade because uh, of all the debt governments, not only the United States, but governments in Europe and uh, Asia have taken on. The Wall Street Journal had a wonderful article this past week about that and showing that uh, this debt is not going away. There's no way of paying off the debt. And the sad reality is that all these military uh, expenditures that are not in our uh, national defense interest, all those dollars have to be borrowed, uh, uh, aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, so we're going to be paying for the, the, these expenditures forever uh, and the interest on that forever. So that's the conundrum we're facing here in the United States is that spending is getting to the point where even in good times, we're having these massive deficits. And that never happened before. Usually in the, in the past 20, 30, 40 years, when we had a strong economy, the deficit was pr pretty low relative to um, income, re relative to the GDP. Now we're having deficits that... Uh, 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 are dwarfing uh, what it, what should be a much saner uh, fiscal policy, but that's not happening. So we know that spending is out of control. Spending is increasing faster than the economy is growing, which is a recipe for disaster down the road. And uh, when I started learning about this 50 years ago, Joseph, I said, one day the United States will have a hard time floating its uh, debt. And I think we're very close to that uh, that. Uh, phenomenon. And if that happens, then I think um, all bets are off in terms of whether the United States will see something like an Argentina, where we could see triple digit inflation. And I'm not predicting that, but it's a real possibility if uh, Americans and others decide, hey, holding the dollar is, is really a fool's errand. So we better get rid of our dollars as soon as possible as we earn them and buy real assets or real things. And um, we came very close to that in the late 70s, early 80s, when we had the double-digit inflation in the United States, 
And um, Volcker came in and raised interest rates to 21% in order to stave off a collapse of the dollar in uh, 1979, 1980. And it worked. Uh, the inflation rate uh, went from 12% down to 3% in two, three years. So you can do it. The question is, it was accompanied by a very severe recession, the worst recession since uh, uh, the Great Depression. And um, who knows whether, when the next recession will hit that it will be as bad as it, as, uh, it uh, could be because of all the money printing and all the debt creation that has taken place. So we are in that place, Joseph, because of no one in Washington uh, wants to reduce spending. In Washington, reducing spending means increasing the budget 4% instead of 8%. That's what a reduction in spending means, which means that spending still goes up every year. And of course, uh, it's not it's not paid for by, uh, by taxes. So the federal government has to borrow. And last year, it was $2 trillion. The deficit was $2 trillion from a sound accounting perspective. And if, if this is what a good economy looks like with a $2 trillion deficit, I hate to see what when we have a, a, a severe recession, we, we could be talking about a three to $4 trillion deficit, uh, which would be mind boggling. And at 5% interest rate, uh, that would be just, uh, uh, that would be $150 billion added to the uh, interest expense we're paying today. So there, there are so many similarities, but there are a lot of differences. In other words, we have a much stronger economy. We have a much more diverse economy. We have, um, enough economic freedom, which has given the United States economy more resiliency than other economies. Um, there's still a lot of entrepreneurship, innovation going on in the United States. We have a vibrant um, export uh, economy at, to a, on a relative basis. And, um, and we're spread out over uh, 3 million square miles. So uh, like you said, uh, Florida is booming. Real estate construction here is just going, uh, no pun intended, through the roof. And um, and uh, we have a lot of good things in the economy. I mean, right now you can go online and buy virtually everything you want. You can buy a car online through one of the uh, car um, uh, outfits that uh, I sold my car online uh, before we moved to Florida, and it was a seamless process. And uh, I just read recently that Amazon may be going into the car uh, selling business. So there are a lot of good things because of entrepreneurship, not because of the government. And uh, Joe Biden doesn't get that. Neither do the Democrats get that, that it's not them in Congress that is going to reduce uh, uh, poverty rates in the United States. It's not them that's going to uh, give us a good GDP. Uh, it's not government spending, which is, was a big factor in the third quarter GDP of 5.2% annual rate. I mean, people don't do a deep dive into the GDP numbers and see that government spending is not economic growth. I think that's one thing we have. That's another myth that we have to demolish. Government spending is not economic growth. What economic growth is producing more cars, houses, uh, and other items that people want more, more uh, products out from the farm. That's economic growth. Uh, it's not the things that uh, people usually associate with uh, GDP of government spending. Uh, government spending is a dead weight on the economy, and that uh, that's been proven by economists uh, for many, many decades. Yeah. Trying to figure out the economy and where it's likely to go is obviously an important thing, although not the easiest of them, that, that's uh, for certain. Uh, what I will say is that a lot of people in the government uh, and in the media, which is sympathetic to the government, are coming up with the argument 
that things are great, this economy is wonderful, but then they had to do an explainer of why people aren't seeing it, why people don't feel it. Uh, there was just an article run, uh, an analysis of government data at CBS the other day, which showed that Americans, I believe, need an extra $11,000 to make uh, a go of things without going into debt. I believe that was the gist of the analysis. Uh, and the, the extra $11,000 annually, I believe it was. Uh, and then at CBS, another article was run about, you know, the uh, the growth in the economy, uh, and it was presented as a good thing. So you have these two articles that are run on the same day, uh, painting a very different picture of the economy, both depending on government data to make their point. I, I, I think it's clear that the economy is not doing well, principally because of inflation. Most people certainly don't think it's doing well. Uh, there's a great deal of insecurity out there in a host of ways. And uh, the government uh, trying to take credit for the quote-unquote good economy, if it wants to make an intellectually honest argument, which it doesn't, it would then have to address uh, those points I just brought up. But clearly, uh, the way the economy is being handled, which is very broadly referred to as Bidenomics, uh, by Joe Biden himself uh, or his advisors who came up with that term as they do anything else in his administration. Uh, it, it, I think it's very obvious that despite what the government says and despite what its uh, pliable media outlets say, uh, the economy really is not that great right now in the U.S. And it does look like it's about to get much better. Murray, any thoughts on any of this? Well, I, I think uh, for, from the perspective of the individual, the, the old adage is, if your neighbor's out of work, it's a recession. When you're out of work, it's a depression. Absolutely. I mean, we have a lot of people working. Uh, the question is, uh, are their salaries, their wages keeping up with um, the cost of living? And just because the inflation rate has declined to about 3.2%, it still means that prices are going up. And they went up a 9% on an annual basis from um, June of 20, 2021 to June of 2022. So we've seen a lot of price increases over the past uh, two years. And so prices are elevated. There are some prices that fluctuate like gasoline prices have come down substantially in the last uh, year or so. And of course, the Biden administration is taking credit for that. Of course, they didn't take credit for the prices going up. Yeah. They take credit for the prices going down. And so I think the focus is on too much on what a president's impact is on the economy. We know that the president can impact the economy by uh, uh, having policies that reduce the supply of oil and therefore gasoline. And so that will have a, an effect on prices. Anytime you have trade uh, restrictions, that impacts the economy. So we need to free up the economy. And uh, like right now, Joseph, we can go to stores and virtually everything is available on the shelf. We go online and we can buy virtually anything online. Um, so we know between e-commerce and we had a very strong um, Black Friday uh, uh, last week, according to the data, American people are spending. So what does that mean from again? I think that means the American people don't want to save because they're worried that prices will go up higher. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing the post COVID effect. People didn't spend much during the COVID period, uh, a year, two years where they were either locked in or uh, didn't get out much. And so they built up their savings. And of course, there was a lot of government spending to prop up people's incomes. So people are now getting rid of that money in order to live a better life. That's what you work for. You work for not for the sake of work, for the most part, you work for this, for the ability to buy the things that you want in life to make your life better. 
And so th that's the whole point of an economy is that you goods are created, the uh, services are created in order to improve your life, whether it's, uh, I just got a, myself a new Apple watch. I mean, it was a seamless process at the Apple store. Um, people were buying phones and, and uh, iPads and what have you. And we were there just the other day, but the uh, salesperson said, it was wild on uh, Black Friday and, and and the following Saturday. People just lining out the uh, lining up out the door because um, it's the latest products that Apple had, and so that they were just trying to get the the latest uh, gadgets that they feel will make their life better. So uh, we know that people are desirous of various goods that are out there, whether it's. Uh, personal goods like uh, clothing or uh, cosmetics or things like that. And um, car sales are somewhere, uh, I haven't looked at the data recently, but uh, car sales, especially EV sales are slowing down because the dealers have written a letter to Joe Biden saying, stop with these mandates because we where inventory on our uh, lots are so full, there's no way we can sell these at prices we thought we could be selling them for. So here's another example of government intervention in the automobile industry, which I used to write about 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, when I was a staff economist at the American Institute for Economic Research. And I would write an article every month on, on the car uh, uh, market and the car sector, the automobile sector. And today we're seeing government mandates, both at the federal level and the state level, which are distorting the, the uh, automobile market. Let the market be determined by consumers, not government mandates. And that's, I think, the primary lesson that economics uh, should be teaching the members of Congress and the administration. But they don't want to hear it because they have an ideological viewpoint, namely that they can manage the economy. And so Malay in Argentina has to make that case. Uh, just as we need to make that case in the United States. Get the government out of the way and the economy will be producing the things that people want, not what the government thinks that people want by mandating automobiles and uh, uh, gas stoves and uh, you name, uh, uh, vaccines and, and other health issues. Let the people decide with their doctor, with their, um, with their spouse, with their partner, whoever they uh, are, uh, have a relationship with, what they need in their life instead of trying to mandate this uh, to people because eventually people get fed up. And I think we're seeing this in the healthcare field. People are really fed up with the government mandates in healthcare. Absolutely. And uh, Murray and I hopefully will do a show about that next month. I think it will be, I have no doubt it will be fascinating because I'm very interested in uh, healthcare and how it functions in on a day-to-day -day basis, particularly from an economic perspective. Sure. Uh, and just talking about how the economy is doing, uh, someone who uh, follows me on Twitter brought up a very good point today. He mentioned that the S&P uh, closed at $4,594.63. Uh, however, at the beginning of 2022, in January, is that $4,796.56. Back in January of 22, uh, a, a dollar uh, today, that, that dollar is worth only 91 cents. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking at the numbers, he uh, determined that the uh, S&P today, $4,594.63, it's really, 
at the level of $4,181.11. That's obviously comparing the S&P in December of 2023 to January of 2022. So this goes to show how much inflation has uh, impacted mm -hmm. things. Even though you have a, a higher S&P now than you had almost two years ago, uh, inflation has made it so effectively the S&P uh, is worth, at its high today, is worth less than it was, uh, you know, back then. It, it's really, uh, it, it's really interesting stuff. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's sad. Uh, it's something that is uh, concerning as well. Obviously, people are trying to uh, plot out a, a long-term financial future. But that is the situation. Anything to say about it, Murray, before we move along? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very good point. But the point I would make, having taught securities and investments for so many years, is for young people, when you put your money in a 401k or an, a Roth IRA or a Roth uh, 401k, you're, you're purchasing stock. If you're buying an index fund like the S&P 500, you're purchasing that every two weeks or every week or every month. And your dollar cost averaging, that's what financial planners tell you is the best way to accumulate um, uh, wealth in the stock market, uh, either through a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, an ETF. Um, and just do that over 30, 40, 50 years. And you're going to have a hell of a lot of money after that time because of the compounding effects. So you can have ups and downs in the stock market. That That is that is the way the stock market operates, given the uh, monetary system that we have and the financial structure of, of the economy is that the markets fluctuate. And that was a point I made in my Fort Myers um, presentation for the Mises Institute on uh, November 4th. Uh, and I can send you the link. You can post that. You can see my 45 minute presentation where I go into the long term stock market. And um, Right now, according to one analyst which, who, whose work I uh, presented, is that he thinks we're in a long-term bull market that could last for another seven, eight, nine years. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it's going to go straight up from here, but he thinks uh, long-term, seven, eight, nine years, that the market will be a lot higher than it is today. Uh, but there'll be downturns like we saw in, uh, this, in uh, July of this year to end of October. We've had this huge rally since the end of October. So markets fluctuate, as J.P. Morgan uh, answered when he was asked, oh, Mr. Morgan, what will the stock market do? He said it will fluctuate. And that's exactly what it does. But long term, uh, all the monetary uh, inflation that occurs drives prices higher over 40, 50, 60, 80 years. So, again, my advice to young people is just keep on putting money away in your 401k and in uh, 40, 50 years when it's time to retire, if you do re retire, you're going to have uh, a multiple of what you invested in. And uh, on a personal level, I, I put away a lot of my money uh, when I was working in a 401k. Actually, it was a 403b since uh, I was a, a college state college employee, and it worked out extremely well. So um, when you have a long time, long-term time horizon, you can make a, a lot of money in the stock market because you have the compound uh, interest effect of uh, investing long-term. And that's uh, something that all successful uh, investors know about. Uh, find the best companies. If you're, if you're trying to buy individual companies, find out which ones you think will have a great track record for, for a long-term. And there are companies that will do that or buy an index fund, as Warren Buffett recommends, because uh, the average person doesn't have the skill to, uh, to look at individual companies and decide which ones are the best for his or her portfolio. So he recommends that the average person buy the S&P 500 because uh, it's dominated by uh, 
the Apples, the Microsofts, the Nvidia's, uh, the uh, Facebooks, the Meta, um, and uh, Google Alphabet. And you're going to benefit by investing in those companies indirectly through an index fund. So uh, it's, a, it's a no brainer for the average person. But the point is, Joseph, you've got to save. You've got to put away a portion of your income. And the standard recommendation by financial planners is that you should put away 10% of your gross income in, uh, in your 401k, at least that. And if your company matches you, that's 100%. That means you're making 100% on your your own investment right away so th this is this to me is is a simple way of investing so that the average person can have a, a much higher net worth but the problem is uh, people are spending we know credit card debt is what one trillion dollars now so that indicates that uh, people are just buying today and not worrying about tomorrow and that's probably the worst financial planning mistake the average person could make why do you think a lot of Americans are in this situation wherein they will buy today stuff they really won't be able to afford uh, without much care for tomorrow uh, or the long run moreover? Well, th this, I think, goes into uh, human psychology. I think some people uh, spend more than they make. That's probably the worst thing you can do uh, on an individual basis, family basis. Uh, status they would like to drive an expensive car when there's no need to i mean the average price of a car today is over fifty thousand dollars which is mind-boggling and with interest expense your monthly uh carrying costs are are enormous so you could downsize the car or you could lease a car uh, at a much uh, lower price you can buy a thirty thousand dollar car or at least a thirty thousand dollar car and they're out they just gotta go find it or you can buy what i've told my students if you really want to stretch your dollars is you buy a two three four year old used car with low mileage as well and you really save yourself quite a bit of money and use the difference to invest and uh, i wish i had followed that advice when i was a young person i would have done a lot better uh in my uh, net worth uh, today if i had done that but uh, yeah, um, and and buy on sale. I mean, that, that's the that's the other thing is you really got to shop around for clothing, for other things that you need, uh, electronics. Uh, we know that's a very competitive market, and uh, just make sure that uh, what you're spending your money on will have long lasting value to you, uh, because uh, it's very easy to get into that mindset that you got to get the, a, a new phone every year, every two years, when uh, you could. Uh, uh, an iPhone or a smartphone could last you four or five years or more. Uh, and so uh, you really got to sit down and say, how much am I making? How much am I paying in taxes? What's left over? What's my rent? We know rents have gone up uh, uh, wildly in, in some uh, locations, especially here in, in, in Southwest Florida. And so you've got to really be prudent these days. And um, uh, we, we were just in Publix today and uh, every week they have sales. So sometimes they'll have a two for one sale. Uh, and if you need the things that they have on sale for two for one, you save yourself a lot of money. Uh, we're Costco members. So uh, we see when there are sales at Costco and, and uh, stock up on things that, are, uh, that we use constantly that have a long shelf life. So there are things you can do on an individual basis to stretch your dollars. I mean, we rarely go out to eat. Uh, that becomes an expensive proposition. And we know young people like to go out to eat uh, and uh, have other expenses that uh, increase their uh, their discretionary expenditures. So like you say, you've got to be prudent. And um, you know, Warren Buffett's a good example of that. He still lives in the same house that he bought, in, I think, in the mid-1950s. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, he... 
so by doing that, uh, and of course, he's he's been a tremendous uh, a steward of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and yes. uh, he's, he's worth over $100 billion. And he said he's given away about $100 billion. So he would be uh, one of the richest persons in the world if he didn't uh, give away uh, a portion of his, um, of his uh, net worth to the Gates Foundation and other foundations over the years. Absolutely. Uh, any thoughts, by the way, uh, on the passing of Charlie Munger? Oh, uh, Charlie, I didn't, I, obviously I didn't know him personally, but uh, I saw some of the interviews with him and CNBC did an interview with him a few weeks ago, uh, just uh, uh, in honor of his 100th birthday, which was going to be J J January 1st. And he, he was a real renaissance man. I mean, uh, he was trained as an attorney, but he also was an architect and uh, he got involved in a whole host of issues, a philanthropist as well. And so... Um, he just provided Buffett with tremendous advice that helped Berkshire become this economic powerhouse, financial powerhouse that it has become uh, since Buffett uh, uh, took over the company in 1965. So um, I want to do some more reading about Munger. Uh, I haven't read a lot. I've re I read a fair amount about Buffett, read his um, letter to shareholders uh, and his annual reports over the years, used the book, um, The Warren Buffett Way, when I taught securities investment. Students loved the book, by the way. They thought the book was just fabulous, giving them great insight about Buffett and his investing approach. What astonishes me is that uh, most financial advisors don't follow the same approach that Buffett uses, finding the best companies you can and, um, and investing heavily in those, like he did with Apple and some other companies. And he's uh, he's made a lot of money for the uh, Berkshire shareholders by doing so. And so instead, today, uh, most financial advisors uh, believe in, quote, diversification, which dilutes uh, your potential returns by not finding the best companies and um, uh, and, and investing heavily in, in those companies. It's interesting that uh, those advisors don't follow this lead, of course, to say they have their own reasons for doing so. But uh, Buffett, no question, is somebody who looks at the long term, and Munger was the same thing. They were both on the same page. Uh, and that's a very wise perspective, uh, to say the absolute least. Uh, now, Murray, there is something interesting going on uh, in politics. There is a proposal among Democrats to tax unrealized capital gains yeah. among billionaires. I am not someone who is, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, a uh, uh, reflexive defender of billionaires, uh, nor do I, you know, say so as racist because he or she's a billionaire. But the problem with this, as I said on Twitter, is that it will add immense instability due to the stock market. Because what will take place, obviously, is that the law is passed then uh, billionaires will sell their shares before their unrealized gains start getting taxed. And that will have a tremendously negative impact on uh, middle-class people who rely on the market for retirement. Uh, and there won't be new investment to any serious degree by these billionaires. So the market would be in a really awful spot. Some have uh, hypothesized that non-billionaires, people who would not be covered by the tax will make up the difference but they just don't have that much they don't have that much capital uh and uh whatever disposable income they have particularly if you start to get into people who are middle class and uh downward they rarely think about saving their money this goes into what we were just talking about they spend their money you know if they get a thousand dollars uh they're not going to go look for a great uh stock that has a good track record uh they're going to probably buy a new television yeah. so uh billionaires being essentially iced out of the stock market 
would be horrendous. Uh, it, 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 it would impact people who are not at all billionaires, to say the least. Uh, you know, the the overwhelming majority of us. Uh, it would have a a really uh, detrimental impact on the retirement plans and overall financial well-being of middle class uh, people. Uh, anything to say about this, Murray? Yeah, this is an example of uh, how the Democrats are desperate to get money in because maybe they do understand it, maybe they don't understand it. The federal government is broke, so broke that it's going to have to, that they think they can come up with a, an unconstitutional way of grabbing uh, people's income because unrealized gains have never been taxed, as far as I know from the tax code. This is, by the way, the income tax is so evil because it gives the uh, political class the opportunity to take money from people. In, in this such um, uh, disingenuous way that unrealized gains should not be taxed. I mean, it's bad enough that taxing capital gains at these high rates when you when you could own an asset for, for decades and inflation has eroded the real value of that asset. So uh, this is such a hard, there's a, I think a case before the Supreme Court of a couple that invested in India and the money was, um, and they were taxed on the unrealized gain of uh, the uh, gain in India. Uh, investment. So th this is a horrendous uh, proposal. And uh, if it gets to the Supreme Court, they should knock it down because there's no authorization in the tax code to tax individual um, uh, unrealized gains. And if they, uh, if the Congress passes a law, I don't see how it passes the House of Representatives, although there may be some Republicans that would agree to that. Uh, that shows you how where some Republicans could be. I mean, th this is probably the worst proposal I've heard in a long, long time because it it would have a, a, a horrible effect on capital formation in this country, which is the engine of prosperity. And um, the economic illiterates in Washington don't get it. It's capital formation that creates prosperity, not government spending. Mm -hmm. And in, in case people don't know, I imagine everyone does, but you never know, an unrealized gain is when you have a gain on paper, but you do not sell the stock to actually convert that into cash. So it's just a gain that is there today, could be gone tomorrow, depending on what you invest in, there's a good chance it will be. So to be taxed on that is crazy because you never get the money from it. It's just what appears on a balance sheet at a certain point in time. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, if this ever passes, uh... I, I, first of all, I don't see how it passes because there, there should be some Democrats who uh, represent states where there are a lot of wealthy people, uh, and they're the donor class, the uh, they're the main donors uh, to to super PACs and uh, candidates. So, um, but the Democrats are are feckless. Uh, they they will do things that they think they can get away with, unless the people say no. And of course, they're going to turn this into a populist issue by saying you got to have the the rich have to pay their fair share. I mean. 40% of the American people don't pay any income tax. So how, and, and the top 1%, I think, pay 40% of the of the federal income tax. Mm -hmm. So to, to, to use that term, it, it's so um, uh, unbelievable um, rhetoric, uh, uh, demagogic rhetoric in terms of uh, people don't pay their fair share. I mean, only the government would say something like that. Uh, when you go to the supermarket, no one asks the, if the wealthy people are paying their fair share at the supermarket. Uh, it just shows you how out of touch they are with uh, economic reality. Absolutely. Uh, it's it, it really is crazy, uh, but I'm not surprised to hear it. I, I, I don't know if I mean, I'm sure some politicians would love to uh, do this, 
But will they actually be able to? I don't think anytime soon. But the thing of it is, is that it builds pressure over time. So one day it might happen. Uh, bad ideas tend to start out as something that's, you know, dismissed yeah. as being, you know, as, as obviously as absurd as they are. But then as pressure builds, people take it more seriously. And eventually something bad happens, which has severely detrimental consequences as, uh, you know, taxing unrealized gains would. Now, Murray, uh, an interesting uh, question I suppose about the Democrats is this. Uh, Andrew Cuomo recently came out and said something that he's been talking about for a while, a uh, capital flight, uh, capital flight from New York, he says, very bad for the state's economy. And the state, he argues, should not be pushing out wealthy people because it doesn't benefit the government because, as you were saying, the government doesn't produce wealth, it consumes it. So the government needs wealthy people around to finance uh, public sector operations. However, uh, it was raised by a prominent pundit that a lot of other uh, big Democratic politicians are not thinking this way. They're not looking at the long term. They don't really seem to care about capital flight, even though it's happening substantially in California and Illinois and other places. Uh, and uh, it, it's bad from the perspective of being someone who likes big government because if you want to have the government have enough money to do what you want it to do, you have to have a tax base. And in order to maintain a healthy tax base, you have to obviously cater to the people who earn a great deal of money or else they'll leave. They'll take their money with them and that will mean your programs are unfunded. Uh, so uh, but Cuomo gets this. He gets it very clearly to his immense credit. But other Democrats don't really seem to care. What do you think about this situation? Well, I think this is one of the uh, foremost issues between the states is that the people are leaving high tax states. They're moving to states that have no income tax, like Florida, like um, Nevada, like Tennessee, and uh, places where the, the business environment is more friendly to entrepreneurship and um, and corporations. So um, uh, New York City and New York State are going to be suffering uh, because of the uh, counterproductive policies of thinking that uh, wealthy people are just going to sit by idly while they're taxed um, at onerous rates in order to fund the welfare state, uh, the welfare systems of, of these uh, 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 government entities. And so I think we're going to see more and more people leaving. Uh, we know that uh, people have left Illinois uh, to uh, Miami. Miami is becoming a major financial hub. Uh, I think um, we're going to see this throughout the state of New Jersey. I'm in New Jersey. <laughs> I'm still in New Jersey, uh, uh, in, in Florida. And um, it's just a matter of time before uh, people realize that a lot of the work they can do can be done outside of an office. And that means you, you don't have to be tied into a specific uh, geographic area. And I think uh, because of our ability to communicate online like this and uh, businesses can conduct a, uh, a lot of work uh, remotely, uh, th this is happening. We're seeing it in medicine. We're seeing it in, in a whole financial planning. We're seeing it in accounting, um, consultancy. Uh, you don't have to be in an office uh, anymore the way you had to be uh, pre-COVID. And so this trend, I think, will continue. And that's why downtown real estate in a lot of cities are suffering because people uh, are not renewing their leases. Companies are not renewing their leases. And um, I just read the other day that a lot of these office buildings in downtown areas will be converted into uh, mixed-use development, retail, and uh, residential. So uh, again, this is the beauty of the marketplace is that um, 
when certain things uh, are no longer necessary, entrepreneurs come in and, and take a valuable resource at, a resource and make it even more valuable. In your opinion, why do a lot of Democratic politicians not seem to care about capital flight when it obviously is injurious to their public policy programs, the longevity of these programs? Well, uh, there are two, th there are several ways. One is they're incredibly stupid, uh, which is, I think, uh, uh, a pretty good um, uh, answer to that. And uh, they just don't know economics. Uh, they, they just think that uh, they can wave a magic wand, uh, pass a law, and uh, everything will be okay. The, uh, soaking the rich is, is something that uh, th they're known for. That That's part of their ideology, that part of their philosophy. Uh, but the thing is, People are voting with their feet. Even middle-income folks are leaving the states uh, because of uh, because of the uh, taxes, uh, the crime, the, the school systems, uh, what have you. And so uh, this trend will continue because um, ideology has a, a, a large role to play in this because people, there are some politicians who are fixated on the notion that they can um, manage an economy and... Um, and get the resources from people who earn the most in their in their uh, jurisdiction. You know, it's interesting because right after World War II, as we begin to wind things down, unfortunately, right after World War II, East Germany was doing much better than West Germany because West Germany, as you said, was crippled after the war ended, and East Germany received an infusion of capital from the Soviet Union. It became a Soviet bloc country. East Germany, for those who don't know, was the Soviet-occupied zone of post-war Germany. Uh, and actually, a lot of West Germans went to East Germany because they could find work there. But what happened uh, rather quickly is that West Germany uh, threw off its economic shackles, which were imposed on it by the Allies, and it became this economic powerhouse. And it left East Germany in the dust. No matter what happened in East Germany, no matter how much money they got from the Soviet Union, uh, no matter how uh, diligently the state tried to plan the economy, they just could not come close to West Germany, uh, let alone hope to surpass it. And after a while, the governor of East Germany said, uh, this is Eric Honecker, he said that the goal is not to uh, produce more in the economy than uh, West Germany does. We have a moral system and we are pursuing our morality. Uh, and he believed that even if their economy didn't perform as well, essentially, uh, it was a more just uh, economic arrangement. And so to compare it to something that was objectively better for people didn't make sense because you're talking about economics, we should be talking about morality. I would say that for the true believers on the left, uh, the, the, it's the same thing. But of course, there are opportunists and cynics there who just do whatever they believe the current thing is because they can get them short-term gains and not at all focused on the long run. So it's an interesting state of affairs, but mildly. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. We took a bus tour of Germany um, on a vacation in the summer of 1992, and we went into um, East Germany, or at least the, the, the part of Germany, because the country was united uh, then, and everything was gray. I mean, every building was gray. And the contrast between East Germany and West Germany in 1992 was so stark, you thought you were living in two different, uh, two different planets. I mean, you could, you could see the, 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 the way the people were, uh, their body language, the way they walked around, and uh, the way the streets were. Um, it was, it was mind-boggling to see the contrast. So here's another example. Same thing with North Korea and South Korea, the difference between those two um, uh, locations, um, given the different economic systems that they have. 
But uh, Germany was fascinating since I grew up in, in uh, I, I was born in West Germany after World War II. It was fascinating to see uh, what uh, Germany looked like in, in 1992 after the Berl, uh, Berlin when a uh, wall came down and uh, the, uh, the two uh, Germanys were reunited. So again, we have all the evidence. We have the theoretical evidence. We have the historical evidence. We have the philosophical evidence. And yet people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and others in Congress still cling to the notion that they know best. I mean, this is the great myth, Joseph, that we have to demolish once and for all so we don't become Argentina. That's the thing that we have to uh, do is that we don't want to become Argentina because we're following the same path as Argentina with with these uncontrolled deficits, with this massive government spending, with a, a, a widespread welfare state. In addition, we have a warfare state. We have a huge military budget. We don't have a defense budget. We have a military budget close to a trillion dollars a year, according to some estimates, even though the official number is lower, um, given all the all off the book spending that we have. So we have a lot of work to do. And uh, one way to um, to uh, change society is not from the top down, which Malay is trying to do in Argentina, but in the United States, I don't think that can be done because the two parties are so entrenched in politics. Uh, even though RFK Jr. Make, may, may make a credible run next year for the presidency, um, and depends on what happens in the economy, what happens with uh, Biden, what happens with Trump, um, he may emerge as um, a competitive uh, presidential candidate next year. So we'll see if he can capture the hearts and minds of the people with practical um, proposals to deal with the issues from the border to the Federal Reserve to spending to foreign policy, he could have a huge impact next year. Yeah, we shall see. It will be uh, interesting. I mean, I don't think there's any way he wins, but uh, there is definitely discord with uh, the Republican and Democratic parties, particularly the candidates that they will offer up. Uh, I think it's clearly going to be Biden or Trump that wins, but uh, RFK Jr. could make a very sizable uh difference. Uh, it was People really didn't know when he announced he was going independent whether he would take more votes from Trump or Biden. Uh, privately, a lot of Democrats feared he'd take more votes from Biden, but, well, but publicly they said, no, he's going to be hurting Trump's chances. And many Republicans also feared that. As I have seen in polling data, which, you know, generally speaking, is not to be taken seriously, doesn't have the greatest track record. I'm a big polling skeptic. But uh, having looked at data that's come out recently, uh, it, it seems that Kennedy is either not having much of an effect or he's taking more votes away from Biden, which is not a surprise. I didn't think he'd really take much away from Trump. Uh, Trump has a much more loyal base than Biden does. That That's the reason. Well, the thing is, uh, the, the presidential race is determined by the independents, which are, what, 40 percent of the electorate. That's a huge, huge um, pool of voters to draw from. And if you can knock if you can take some Democrats and some Republicans and get a lot of independent votes, uh, you can win with 35% of the vote, 33%, 34% of the vote. Now, of course, in a three-way race, the question is the Electoral College. That's where it becomes kind of dicey because uh, will he be winning any states? And if he wins a few states, then nobody gets the 270, then it goes to the House of Representatives. That's when the horse trading really begins. Um, the last time we had that is, what, 1820? Uh, 24, something like that. Uh, so, yeah. so uh, uh, with John Quincy Adams. So uh, 
it's going to be a fascinating year to say the least. And um, that's why I say uh, get the popcorn and buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be uh, one of those years. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. It'll be very interesting. One thing, though, that has not come to pass, which many in both parties thought would, is that these uh, charges against Trump, civil and criminal, have not at all harmed his uh, viability. Uh, they haven't. Uh, he's become more popular. Uh, does this surprise you? Not really, because uh, I think people realize he came in, he challenged the so-called deep state, and now they're going after him. So um, so I think people realize that this is all political from their perspective, and therefore let's, let, let's support him and, and see if he can um, uh, win the presidency again. And I think that's where we are today, is that um, uh, unless something drastic happens, uh, he's going to be the nominee. And... Um, I've I've been on the on the record of my Substack column. I don't think Biden's going to be the nominee. I think uh, Gavin Newsom's going to be the nominee, um, and uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, after seeing him uh, in sparring with uh, uh, Ron DeSantis on Hannity uh, yesterday, um, uh, Newsom is basically the West Coast Bill Clinton, very mm -hmm. slick, uh, very nice. articulate, um, attractive physically uh, to a lot of the voters, and. Um, just uh, twist things around without answering the questions directly. So, um, so I think uh, the Democrats would like to see him uh, run, and I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, I don't think he will run, but I do think that he's definitely going to run in 2028. Uh, I, although you never know, I could be wrong. Believe it or not, I have been wrong about certain <laughs> things <laughs> in the past, and no doubt I will be again. I will uh, say for certain. That Newsom, if you look at him and his family, they look like Florida Republicans, which mm -hmm. is very dangerous for the GOP because they look normal. You look at Biden and his family, they do not look normal. They look like a, a reality show from the 2000s. Uh, but uh, Newsom and his family, they look normal, and that carries a lot of weight uh, in campaign season and certainly on election day. Oh, yeah. There's no question about it. He's a very, quote, attractive candidate. But he's a, a, a left winger. I mean, he's a he's a big statist. Uh, the lockdowns were onerous in California. They have these uh, uh, electric vehicle mandates. Uh, there, California is used to be the place that people would uh, love to um, uh, relocate to. And I spoke to a journalist uh, the other day, and I said, if you gave me a million dollars a year, I would move to California for a whole host of reasons. Um, but um, I used, we used to visit uh, San Francisco occasionally uh, back in the day, and it was a magnificent place. You could walk uh, downtown, uh, not see any homelessness, not see any um, human um, uh, waste uh, in the streets. And now, of course, uh, it's become what looks like a third world city, which is uh, a sad commentary on, on, on the uh, uh, governance of uh, San Francisco. But obviously they had enough um, uh, desire to uh, clean up the place for the, uh, for the uh, meeting with, the, uh, with uh, Xi uh, from China the other day. So uh, they do, they can get it together if they want to, but um, the people are suffering there and um, uh, store companies are leaving. The downtown is becoming a ghost town and uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and the same thing in, in Los Angeles with these 10 cities. So uh, California has a lot going for it. I mean, it, it's an incredibly diverse economy, 
one of the largest in the world if it was a separate state. So maybe um, if Trump does get elected, California will be the first to secede. <laughs> you never know. I mean, you really never know. That's the, uh, the, that's the thing. We're in an age of great uncertainty, and there's no doubt in my mind that the uncertainty will continue during the months, years, and decades to come, although how many decades the United States has left, who the hell knows. Now, Murray, uh, the last point here uh, goes back to something you brought up earlier. Uh, what do you think about the argument that there will never be enough unity or capital among the BRICS countries to have their own currency that could rival that of the United States? These people would say the U.S. dollar's status as the global reserve currency is yeah. king and nothing can upstage it. This BRICS talk is just uh, immature, ridiculous. What's your opinion on this argument? Well, anything is possible when it comes to uh, finance and economics. I mean, the thing is, you, technically, you would have to come up with some sort of uh, currency that uh, or monetary unit that uh, these countries could agree on that would be accepted in the international uh, community. So the dollar has been accepted in the international community based upon the Bretton Woods system from 1944. And then, of course, Nixon blew that up with uh, uh, severing the, the last link between the dollar and gold, which was the one of the foundations of, of the Bretton Woods system. So that system only lasted 27 years. Now we've had 50 plus years of the uh, fiat monetary system where the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And that hasn't worked out uh, uh, too well, given that um, we have all this debt, uh, the, the dollar has declined in value, other currencies have declined in value. And um, if the BRICS can come up with something that people around the world would accept, then I think you've got to challenge the U.S. dollar. And of course, the United States doesn't want to challenge the U.S. dollar um, because that means that uh, there'll be less demand for dollars around the world. And that would uh, tend to lead to higher prices Absolutely. as uh, the dollars would be sold and um, prices would go up uh, for American um, consumers. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, I do think there is the potential for a serious challenge to uh, the dollar's global supremacy, although that would not be any time uh, in the immediate future, right. although it could come up you know, over the next decade, who knows? Uh, but there are serious moves being made, uh, particularly by Saudi Arabia, to establish itself as a global economic power. Obviously, it's very powerful now due to oil, but it wants to, it is diversifying its economy and is trying to become a, uh, a hub of economic activity, the hub of economic activity in the Middle East. Uh, and I think it has a very good chance of doing that. Uh, one day, I think there will be a very strong economic alliance and probably political between Saudi Arabia and Israel. That would be the Middle East Development Corridor. And uh, that could produce so much activity that over time, it in conjunction with others around the world, they might form some sort of uh alternative to the dollar it, it, it's possible for sure no question about it so uh, uh, there are so many possibilities uh going forward that uh, it's very hard to predict uh, what exactly will happen but um uh, we know that the current situation in the United States is not sustainable. That's Absolutely. the major point. So once we establish that, the question is, what do we do about it? And that's why uh, I and other people have been writing about uh, solutions to um, the big issues facing the country, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And of course, education is, is a big issue, um, health care. So again, we have a lot of issues that need to be addressed. Uh, and of course, the monetary situation as well, the tax uh, 
tax code as well. So again, there's not a, there's not a, a shortage of issues to to write about because it would make life better for the vast majority of the American people. The only people that'd be the losers are the people who uh, depend upon the welfare warfare state. Very interesting. Uh, obviously, you're describing it as the welfare warfare state. That is a very good way of putting it. Murray, uh, I hope that you return. Obviously, next month we'll discuss health care then. That would really be fascinating. Uh, there, there's a hell of a lot to go over there, but there was so much that we were able to address tonight in a fairly short period. Uh, it was done very well, which you know was always the case whenever you're on the show. Uh, thank you very much for stopping by. Thanks, Joseph. Always great to be with you. Oh, really, always great to have you on there. There's no shortage of stuff to bring up. Your expertise is massive and it <laughs> pertains to many different timely topics. Uh, everyone, thank you uh, for having tuned in. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as Murray and I have. I hope you learned quite a few interesting things. Uh, in any case, please stay safe, be well, and cheers.